Well, good morning. Last time this happened, I said it would never happen again. And here we are, not even two years ago. Another lesson and never say never. So Ken is gone, be praying for him. Kyle's gone, be praying for him. Chris would normally fill the pulpit, but he's got a great class over there that he's teaching. I'm a little bummed I'm missing. Um, but anyway, so I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning. And it's really cool to me. I've already seen God working in the details. That psalm that Tyler read this morning was just so picture perfect. And there's been a number of other things where I've seen God working. So um, I'm excited. I have expectation. I, I pray and hope and come expectantly. I, I hope you do too, that he's going to do a work in my heart and your heart and change us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we love you dearly, Lord, and we want to be abiding with you and close to you and intimate with you and devoted to you. And Lord, please just work by your spirit and uh, your word here, Lord, to uh, make us more like your son. Lord, get me out of the way. Lord, I pray you would just come with power to your people. Lord, um, again, we love you and uh, ask for your help. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, when Ken told me uh, or asked me uh, to fill the pulpit months ago, I started praying. I prayed for weeks, prayed for probably a month about what to, what to bring. And my heart was that I really just wanted to be uh, an encouragement. I wanted something that would encourage us and help us um, because I feel like our church has just been through a season now for years of just some really hard trials. There's been a lot of heartache, a lot of hard stuff, a lot of difficult trial and trouble in our church. And, uh, you know, we're one body, the scriptures say. First uh, Corinthians 12, 26 through 27 says, uh, if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you're a Christ body and individually members of it. We're a spiritual family. And um, anyway, as I was praying through that, and what would my what might help us and encourage us in the season of trial and trouble. Psalm 77 is what the Lord brought to my mind. Um, so open your Bible there, please. We're going to go through this. It was a psalm that helped me at one of the lowest points in my life and encouraged me. And so I hope it will help and encourage you because after all, the scriptures are very clear. Christ said, in this world, you will have trouble. You're either in it now or it's coming. But we can take heart because he's overcome the world. And it follows really well on the heels of 1 Peter. We just spent years in 1 Peter together as a church body, and we went through an entire book exhorting us and encouraging us to persevere in trial. There's so many grand truths I just wanted to read. I had a whole list of them. I just wanted to read through them again because they're so powerful, but I, I had to whittle it down, and I learned in first service, by the way, I have more material. Even after I whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled, and I still have too much. So I'll be even skimming the surface here in some ways, but... These are worth reading. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's another one. 1 Peter 3, 17 through 18 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And here's the third jugular text from 1 Peter I chose to read this morning. Therefore, this is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be dominion forever and ever. Amen. All powerful truths that change our lives, change hearts, change how we respond to the situations in life. All three of those texts speak of the sufferings that Christians will face and what's more, they speak of suffering being even necessary, part of God's will for your life, and for a larger, bigger purpose, proving our faith, perfecting us, confirming us, strengthening us, establishing us, and resulting in something, in praise, in glory, in honor for Christ and our eternal dwelling with him. And yet... It's hard. It's really hard. And in Psalm 77, we see Asaph really struggling with his faith in the various trials he's facing. And it's one of the reasons we love the Psalms. There's no pretense. It's just real, raw humanity struggling with faith and what they know about God and what they see in this broken world. And it's what I know many of us are also going through or will go through. And so if you got a handout, you know there's three headings, the struggle, the shift, and the solution. And so we're just going to start breaking this down verse by verse, and we'll, it'll have to be skimming at some points to get it all in, but let's start. Verse 1, it's written by Asaph. It says, my voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. And so it starts out, he's crying out to the Lord, he's appealing to God, this is good. This is what we would expect. Elohim is the word used. It's the all-powerful one, creator, the majestic one. It's in the beginning. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, used over 2,500 times for God in the Old Testament. He's intense here. This is not just some singular tear rolling down his face. This is an intense situation. It's an outcry. He's weeping. It's a lament of distress. You can sense the anguish and the desperation in his situation, and he's crying aloud to his king because he knows that God will hear him. 
He knows God will give ear. It's what God does when his people cry out to him. It's an act of faith and trust of what we know to be a godly man. Asaph is going to the one who listens. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God is a faithful God. He hears his people and he can answer, but it doesn't mean that he will. It doesn't mean that he will grant my every request. We just heard that our prayer has to be according to his will. There are other requirements. We have to be his. Proverbs 28.9 is a text the Lord brought to me years ago that stunned me. He says that he turns away his ear from listening to the law. Even his prayer is an abomination to him. And so there are some requirements. But nevertheless, God hears his people. And Asaph is coming to him. Verse 2 says, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. And so you can see he's crying out to the Lord day and night continually. This denotes a long trial by virtue of his long and continual pleas to the Lord. His word trouble here is distress or anxiety or adversity or affliction. And God's the one who tells us to come to him in those situations. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Psalm 50. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46. So Asaph is not only going to the right place because God hears, but also because God is the one who can help. God is the one who can do something about this. And we don't know what the trouble was. It doesn't tell us. It could be his own sin. We know that the scriptures are clear that we suffer for our sin. Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 13, 15 says, Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. And in verse 21 of the same Proverbs, it says, Adversity pursues sinners. Or it could be someone else's sin. The scriptures are clear that sometimes we're suffering because of somebody else's sin. Sin just splatters on anybody near it and causes devastation. Or it could be that it's just part of this sin-cursed world and the secret will of God for his glory and his people's good. I love John 9, verses 2 through 3. You probably remember this. It brings great perspective and difficulties in life. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so just like in 1 Peter, just like in Job, just like in the life of Christ, some things are just part of God's providential plan. And we can't point to any specific sin that we did or that we know somebody else did, but it's part of the sin-cursed world and part of God's plan to redeem it. I'm not sure which category your trouble might fall in today or which category it will fall in, but our response as God's people must be to cry out to him day and night, to fall prostrate before him and to avoid depression and despair. We must seek him day and night without weariness. The stretched out that we read there is just, it's all of him. He's reaching, he's straining. It's a posture of prayer. It's neediness and dependence, and he's not stopped. He's fully engaged in this. It's not half-hearted. And the without weariness is just that he's not going to be ignored. He's not going to stop. 
He's not going to grow sluggish or feeble or weak in this. He's going to continue to do it. And so far, so good. This is beautiful. This is seeking the Lord in trouble with all your heart is what we would expect. But here's where this psalm in my trial really got my attention. It says, my soul refused to be comforted. His soul was like a petulant child with a mean face and just not, I'm not going to listen. It's like his soul was saying, no, this is not right, not okay, not acceptable. Here we have a godly man who is a parched, thirsty soul coming to the living waters and seeking it out and yet not quenched. Refusing to drink, he wasn't comforted. The idea of comfort here is to change one's mind or repent or relent, and his soul refused to repent or relent. Godly man crying out to the Lord, seeking him day and night, seeking him with all he had, fully engaged without weariness, and yet he wasn't helped. His soul refused to be comforted. What's going on? Have you been there? I've been there. The rest of the psalm is going to give us some good insight into this, but sometimes we're just so distracted by the trouble and the trials that we lose our way. The hurt and the unmet desires just overwhelm us. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we just simply do not want what the Lord has ordained for our life. Those, we just read them, those necessary by the will of God, trials for our good and his glory, we just don't want it. At least that's what I saw in my heart. I'm not here to condemn you. I want to help you. It's for you to deal with your heart before the Lord. But I saw this in mine. If my comfort is in the circumstances going away and they don't go away, then I'm not going to be comforted when I cry out to the Lord to take away my circumstances that he's not taking away. I have to learn to find comfort in something or someone else in spite of my circumstances. But until that change in heart happens, we get stuck on the circumstances and we focus on the seen instead of the unseen. We're crying out to him, but still focused on our desires or the circumstances. We really just have a strong desire for him to answer my prayer the way I've requested it, to order things the way I want them ordered. And so you see there's, there's a crying out to the Lord sometimes that is still really a rebellion against his will for our lives. The seeking of the Lord, the stretching out of the hand, the crying aloud to him is for him to change the circumstances. And we will not be comforted when this is our state of mind. I don't know if you've been there or if you're there now, but I've been there. And this will be disturbing for us. And that's what Asaph is. He's disturbed. It says in verse 3, When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. This is a very helpful word to, to study. He knows that God can change things. He knows that he's able that he hears him and yet he's allowing difficulty in his life the very things we do not want and would never have planned for ourselves and it's hard it's hard and he's disturbed this word is boisterous or uproar or howl 
or wail or murmur or noisy. It's an unsettled soul. A roaring, boisterous, murmuring. It can be complaining or aroused. The inner man isn't surrendered. It's shaking its fist a bit at God. It's up in arms. The word sigh is really just meditate or speak or complain. One commentator said these are his melancholy musings. It's used in Psalm 55, 17. I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. Job says in 7.11, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. You know, we all meditate. You meditate. We all meditate. We just often meditate on the wrong thing. We're often meditating on things here and not above. We're complaining maybe internally about the circumstances that we don't want. Instead of focusing on what he wants and desires. The circumstances of life instead of the truths of his character and his plan and his promises. And when this is our frame of mind, and this is what we're musing on and meditating on, our spirit grows faint. It's a downward spiral that takes us down spiritually and physically. And that's what happens to him. All his complaining and wrong musing causes his spirit, which is just a, the idea of the inner man, to grow faint. Faint is weak, feeble, the desire to hide yourself. Or overwhelmed. Your New King James Version, if you have it, says, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. As a man thinks, so he is. Garbage in, garbage out. Stinking thinking just destroys. And that's where Asaph is at this point. And so verse 4, it says, You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Even sleeplessness, a normal natural break in the trial goes away. He says God held his eyelids open. He's sinking into depression and despondency. He's so troubled. Trouble turned us so troubled. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. And how he's handling it is not making things better, it's getting worse. The, uh, the trouble there is agitated or anxious or stirred. It's used of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. You remember those stories and how they were, how they were after their dreams. They were just so troubled. They were undone by those things. He's so troubled, he can't speak. And I've been there. I don't know about you, but it, when you're so troubled, I just I was in silence. When our circumstances are so heavy and so all-consuming and so opposite of what we want or what I planned, that it overwhelms us. And the negative situation occupies our every thought, it seems. And it takes up our days and fills our mind and our thoughts of the future. And we have trouble thinking about anything else. And we dwell on the trouble. And it consumes us and just runs wild in our head and our hearts. It drags us out into the unknown future where we shouldn't be and starts to undo us with every possible negative what-if scenario that could happen and fear of those unknown future events that may or may not ever happen, they become the truth by which we're living in the current moment. 
and we're undone. The barrage of negative possibilities out of our control crash in all at once and we become despondent, mute, paralyzed by the sheer weight of it all and just shattering the plans we had for our life. Our plans collide with God's perfect will and we struggle to be okay with it, much less accept it, much less embrace it. And God was revealing in my heart at least just that maybe he wasn't really as preeminent as I thought he was or that he certainly deserves to be. Which is all part of him and his perfect plan for his people to conform them to the image of Christ. And so this downward spiral, brothers and sisters, when, when trouble hits, you know, if something else is operating other than his will and his glory, we can become inconsolable disturbed, unsettled, in an uproar. We start to muse and meditate on the wrong things, complaining internally. Our spirit or inner man grows faint. We slip further down. Trouble multiplies to where we can't even speak. We won't be comforted when we're like this, even if we cry out to him. In verse 5, we start to see some of his thinking here. It starts to help us understand he says, I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. And so part of his struggle here is he's focused on the troublesome circumstances that he does not want, especially as compared to the glory days of the past. His mind goes back to better times, and Asaph is downcast. And this is a common struggle for us. One commentator says, we are apt to magnify days of old for the justifying of our uneasiness and discontent at the present. And the trial of the past usually is glorified to be a grand time. It's juxtaposed against the current circumstances and difficult situation, and it looks sweet. And we long for that time because the current circumstances are not what we want. Remember Israel, after being redeemed from slavery in Egypt by miraculous wonders from the Lord, and then they long to go back to the same slavery that they were saved from for food? We too are being led by the Lord to a good place with him and we long for lesser things to soothe our flesh. And in verse 6 it says, I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. They would sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. He's remembering that. Heart and spirit there are just again synonyms pointing us to the inner man and he's going to ponder now. He's going to ponder but in this state of mind, what is he going to meditate on? He starts to, he starts to doubt. He starts to doubt. Doubts start to flourish. And look at verse 7 through 9. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion. And you can hear the pain and the anguish in this. When you or someone you know is in a place where they start questioning God and his character, it's heartbreaking. And this section, again, gives us some more insight into why there's no comfort and why he's disturbed and faint and sleepless and speechless. And the questions kind of betray the focus and the heart's desire. All these questions are really focused on him and his situation because we know the Lord is continually about the goal of 
glorifying his name and ushering in his kingdom. He'll never reject that. What's he rejecting? Asaph's agenda. My agenda. Your agenda. In this state of mind, feelings rule us. It's not his word or his truth. We are led and controlled by our feelings and desires. And so it feels like God is wrong. It feels like God's unjust. It feels like he's not there or he's forgetful. And so Asaph starts to question God. And isn't it just like Satan that causes us to question God and his character? And we can even get to where we put ourselves in judgment over God. Job 40, verse 8, the Lord is talking to Job. He says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And in this state, everything is magnified. Everything is elevated. Reject forever? Loving kindness ceased forever? Promises come to an end forever? Asaph, in this state, he's questioning God's character, maybe innocently, I'm not condemning him, I don't know, maybe insubordinately, but either way, it's heartbreaking to be in this state. Asaph doubts or questions God's acceptance of his people, his loving kindness, his faithfulness to his promises, his grace and his compassion. This is, this is poor meditation. This is poor musing. One commentator said, I would say that a practical atheist said these things, but I have asked the same questions. Maybe you have too. Do you realize that there are many of us believers who practice atheism? We, and I include myself, act as if God does not exist, and if it, as if he does not hear our prayers, as though he has thrown us overboard we live as though God is no longer favorable and has stopped expressing his grace. Spurgeon wrote, Asaph, because of distraction, declined even those grounds of consolation that ought to have been effectual with him. As a sick man turns away even the most nourishing food, so did Asaph. It is impossible to comfort those who refuse to be comforted. You may bring them to the waters of promise, but... Who shall make them drink if they will not do so? Many a daughter of despondency has pushed aside the cup of gladness, and many a son of sorrow has hugged his chains. In Isaiah 7, 9, it says, If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And so this is bad meditation, and he's in a deep, dark spot. But here's where the, this psalm changes. Here's where it shifts. This is your second point. Verse 10 there's a Selah, sorry, at the end of verse 9, first off. And it says, Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Selah, that Selah, it's a stop. He's, he's stopping himself. And then you notice he's going to start speaking to himself. He's talking to himself. He's speaking truth to himself. He's engaging. He's not passive, letting thoughts just come in his mind and run wild and free he's gonna be active now he's gonna stop himself he's gonna speak truth to himself it's a purposeful thing active thing you must fight you must do something and that something is filling your mind 
with truth from our God. And now you can see, too, he's not doubting God. He's proclaiming God. In the NASB, the reference to the right hand and the Most High tip us off that he's turned the corner here. Because right hand is denoting his omnipotence and his power. And Most High is denoting his loftiness, his supremacy, his exaltation. He's holy. He's preeminent. He's good. So he stops questioning God and accusing him of changing. And now he preaches to himself that he is the issue and that he's changed God in his thinking. He's not focused on his trouble now. He's focused on our great God, and he's not questioning our great God now. Now he's proclaiming and preaching how great God is to himself. So yeah, now we're talking. Now he's on the right track. In the NIV, it says uh, there's, there's different translations. I know some of you are looking at a different translation. The NIV says, Then I thought to this I will appeal the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. The ESV then says, uh, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Or the New King James says, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And so when just in my study, put it all together, everything we've, we've seen, the sense is that his grief was because the Lord had ordained a change in circumstances for his life. And in responding to it, his thinking about God had changed and it was time to redirect his thoughts because it was causing him grief. Grief is pierced or wounded or slain. And then back to the NAS, we know God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change in his character or his promises, but the circumstances and situations in life may change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Asaph's circumstances had changed. The favorable times of the past had faded and trial had ensued. His thoughts of God changed and he was tempted to doubt. But he starts to recall to mind God and his power and his holiness now. One commentator said, Despondency of spirit and distrust of God under affliction are too often the infirmities of good people and as such, are to be reflected upon by us with sorrow and shame, as by Asaph here. This is my infirmity. When at any time it is working in us, we must suppress the rising of it and not suffer the evil spirit to speak. We must argue down the insurrections of unbelief as Asaph here. And this, brothers and sisters, is so key, so huge and important. It's life and death spiritually and even physically and here's our third point the solution verse 11 i shall remember the deeds of the lord surely i will remember your wonders of old there has to be a shift brothers and sisters in allegiance and thinking to the plans and purposes of god and above the plans we have for our life there just has to be and isn't that only right this life isn't about you and me, it's about him. And there's joy and peace in believing him and being on his agenda. The scriptures tell us in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Asaph, here he's back on the right track, like I said, he says, I shall remember. 
He's purposeful. He's willful. He's intentional. No more coasting for him. He's going to remember is to recount it. He's going to make it known to himself. He's going to praise God. He's going to be mindful of what God has done. That's what remembering is. Recount it. And we're commanded to do that all throughout the scriptures. 1 Chronicles 16, 12 is just one example. He says, remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. And on and on the list goes. Jesus tells us to remember his words. We're everywhere commanded to remember, remember, remember. It's the rallying cry of every child of God. And so he's remembering and recounting to himself. And what is he going to remember and recount? Is he going to remember and recount his glory days or his uh, questions and doubts about God? No, he's going to remember and recount, it says in verse 11, his deeds and his wonders. And in verse 12, his work. And it's translated deeds again, but that's a fourth Hebrew word there in verse 12. There's four different synonyms in the Hebrew that all basically mean the same thing. And he's just piling them on top of each other for emphasis. To remember, it's like one commentator said, Asaph chose his words carefully so as to create the impression that he is reflecting on the Lord's works in their great variety, in creation, in redemption, in judgment, and salvation. And so what you're thinking on, what I'm thinking on, brothers and sisters, and dwelling on changes everything. It changes everything. And here we come to a key verse in verse 12. He says, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. It's a key verse because you see here, it's not enough just to remember it. You have to meditate on them, muse on them. This is the silver bullet. This is the missing link for so many of us. One commentator said, the reason why so many examples of the grace of God contribute nothing to our profit and fail in edifying our faith is that as soon as we have begun to make them the subjects of our consideration, our inconstancy, which is just that we're not constant, we're fickle, we're variable, we're kind of like squirrel, you know, as soon as we start to meditate on these things, we're distracted by something else. And so much more in this culture, in this society, with all the stuff clamoring for our attention. He says, our inconstancy draws us away to something else. And thus, at the very commencement, our minds soon lose sight of them. Meditate. The word is to rehearse truth again and well, rehearse again and again and again, to go over it again and again and again, continually to look at it from all different angles. And we know that blessed is the man who does this, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from our mouths, but we shall meditate on it day and night so that we would be careful to do according to all that is written, and then we will have success. Muse, in verse 12, again, is just another Hebrew synonym for meditate. And again, he's just piling them on for emphasis. It's to consider something, to declare something, to pray, to converse with oneself about something, to speak, to talk. Psalm 39.3 says, my heart was hot within me while I was musing. And I know you want your heart to be on fire for the Lord. It's through this type of activity. 
Psalm 143.5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. And so again, he's piling up these synonyms for emphasis. He's going to remember four things, the deeds, the works, the acts, the wonders of the Lord. He's going to muse on it. He's going to meditate on it. He's going to go over the matter in his mind again and again and again. And he's not going to stop. You can do this for better or for worse. As I said earlier, we all meditate. What do you meditate on? What fills your mind? You can meditate on the wrong things. That's what Asaph was doing in the first nine verses. And you see the result. He wasn't comforted. He was disturbed. He was faint. He was so troubled he could not speak. Or you can meditate on what he's meditating on now. He's turning the corner. Things are going in the right direction. And the rest of the psalm is just an example, one example of what it looks like to do this. Verse 13 through 20 is him doing this. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like you, great like our God. He's just going to start rehearsing. He's going to go over the deeds. He starts with God is holy. He's set apart. He's different. All else is created. He's the creator. He can't stop being gracious. He is grace. He can't stop being who he is. All he does is perfect and right and good. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. So he's musing rightly now. He's recounting to himself. He's rehearsing truth. Jerry Bridges says, God never vacillates. He's all, he always does what is right and just without the slightest hesitation. It is impossible in the very nature of God for him to do otherwise. And this truth should comfort us in trials. All that he does is perfect and just. Another commentator said, his ways are higher than ours, different than ours, separate than ours. To discern and respond to them correctly, we too have to rise above the fleshly, earthly sense of things and focus on things above, things unseen, not seen. And he says, who is great like our God? He's acknowledging that there are many things in the world that people worship, little g gods, but there is only one true God and none compares He's looking at God's holiness, his greatness, and then he goes to his wondrous deeds and miracles in verse 14. Psalm 86, 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any whose works are like yours. Next, he meditates on God's omnipotence, his power over all things and all peoples. He knows now his right hand has not changed. It's still mighty and no one can thwart it. Lamentations 3.37 through, through 38 says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the, of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Proverbs 19.21 is another example. It says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. And so Asaph is just meditating. He's musing. He's recounting. He's calling to mind holiness, greatness, wondrous works, strength. And as he's doing this, he, he says next, verse 15, you have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And so he's saying, hey, and you're using all of these amazing, awesome attributes of yours and power and strength and goodness to save us, to redeem us. He's a redeemer. He's doing something in this. It's good. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's grace. He remembers his ancestors, Jacob and Joseph. And we have another Selah break there. He goes from general to specific here, from high level to specific instances, which is a good example for you and me too in our musing and in our meditating to not stop at the surface, not stop at the high level. Keep drilling down. Keep going. Get deeper. Go more into the specifics. Verse 16, then Asaph says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. And so he's just going to meditate now on how God showed his wondrous power over creation as he was redeeming his people. Creation bows to the Lord. He rules over all. The waters trembled. Even the deep waters trembled. The depths submit to our God. Verse 17 In 18, it says, the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. He has power over the depths. He has power over the heights. The clouds obey him. The thunder obeys him. The lightnings obey him. From the depths to the height, creation bows to our God and does whatever he pleases. The earth trembles and shakes at the Lord. Everything here is trembling and shaking and surrendering to him, shouldn't we? So he's just saying, behold your God. And in 19 is a striking key text as well to me. It says, your way was in the sea and your path in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known see his way was in it his way was through it the exodus account is clear it was a terrifying event for israel it was a trial or trouble they did not want exodus 14 10 through 12 says as pharaoh drew near the sons of israel looked and behold The Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Here we see an example of someone in trial and trouble. And they're terrified at their trouble. And they're crying out to the Lord. They didn't want this. And they weren't comforted as they cried out to the Lord. They were disturbed and complained. 
And they long for the days of old in slavery. And they question God. You know, where was their focus? It was on their circumstances. But God's way was through that. His way was in that. Why? Because he was bringing them somewhere. He was doing something in this. Something better. Somewhere better. He was doing something in that way and in that path. He was saving them. He was redeeming them in spite of their weaknesses and in spite of the fact that they wanted to remain in slavery versus go through the trial. Exodus 14, 13, as it goes on, it says, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward through it, through the trouble, through the trial. He had caused, but he, and he created it but to bring them to the promised land, salvation. The very scary circumstances were caused by the Lord and he was there in it with them to see them through it and working in and through those circumstances to bring about his plans, his purposes, his glory for their ultimate good. So as Asaph is meditating on this, you could think too about Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 7, Years later, they're about to enter the promised land, and here's what God says. He says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Muse on that. Meditate on that. Always in trouble, out of trouble, recount it, remember it. Hold on tight to it. It goes on to say, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. And he's doing the same thing today, brothers and sisters, for his people because he's the same loving, redeeming, all-powerful, good, and holy God all by his grace, all through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're in him, you will make it through. Whatever he has in store for his people, he will bring them through it. But the unbelieving Egyptians were destroyed by it. And he goes on, he says, you did not, your footprints may not be known. And it's interesting we want to see his footprints. We want to be able to trace his steps. We want to be able to see him and feel him there. 
but the secret things are his. But he is there. He was there. Because verse 20 says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He, he was there. He's there in the trials of his people. He is there pointing them forward, seeing them through it, with them in the trouble. And he doesn't forsake his people. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. And look, he uses his earthly under-shepherds as one way to do that. He uses his people. They were led by Moses and Aaron. And we're likened to a flock, which is so appropriate because we're weak and feeble and so needy and so dependent. But we have a wonderful shepherd who is leading us through it. He's there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 12, we're told to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And he's building his church. So we have to learn to look, learn to see his hand, his way, his blessings in and through the trial. They're all around. They're all around. Think of how he's growing your faith. Think of how he's affecting all the people around you who are also burdened for you and growing their faith. Think about all the people crying out to him in prayer for you and how he's sanctifying everybody. Think about how your walk through that trial will glorify him as people watch you, even though you're weak, even though you're struggling, even though you're, you're hurting, but you stand firm in the faith. All these things, God's working through it. He's strengthening you. He's strengthening others. He's bringing glory to his name and he's redeeming you and his people. Calvin said, let us learn to open our eyes, to behold the works of God, the excellence of which is of little account in our estimation by reason of the dimness of our eyes and our inadequate perception of them, but which, if examined attentively, will ravish us with admiration. So take note, brothers and sisters, at the difference between this godly man, verses 1 through 9 and verses 10 and following. Same circumstances as far as we know. Nothing's changed here. Completely different results, though, because of what he's doing, because of what he's filling his mind with, because of what he's meditating on and musing on and remembering and recounting and holding tight to and preaching to himself and not stopping. Completely different results. Now, he's like Psalm 131. Instead of, instead of no comfort and disturbed and uh, what else did it say? It said that he was um, so troubled he could not speak and faint and sighing. Now, we have a different result. He's like that Psalm 131, the quieted soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother because of what he's doing, because of how he's responding to the circumstance in his life. Trial or no trial, how are you interpreting life? What are you thinking? What are you dwelling on? What are you meditating on? What are you musing? What are you recalling to mind? What are you recounting? And notice, too, how it just kind of ends abruptly. It just stops. And it's almost as if it's like that for a reason, to leave us with the impression that it's ongoing. It doesn't stop. 
You have to keep at this. Because we're to never stop doing this. It's part of the battle. You must fight. The battle in your mind between the spirit and the flesh, it never ends. Until the extent that we remember and recall these things, we have life. And to the extent that we focus on circumstances and trouble and trial and untruths, we have the results of verses 1 through 9. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we have to have the mind and the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they were, they were totally resigned to whatever the will of God is. I know he can change this, but whatever he does is fine. Christ said, not my will be done, but your will be done. There are so many, there's so much more. This could be weeks of, of going over, but um, we're out of time. So just maybe to jot down a couple of verses I might have read. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18 is a sweet passage that many of you probably know, but it's a good one to, to review in this. First uh, Peter has so many. 4, 19 is one. I love reading Job 38 through 42, especially if you're struggling and you're starting to lose sight of who God is for a moment. Go read that and just be in awe of him. There are so many truths of scripture that we can meditate on and rehearse and recount and muse on that will give you the help that you need in trouble. Life isn't about us, it's about him. We're just passing through and he's leading us to somewhere better. We're simply his stewards, his creation, his heralds, his ambassadors created for eternity, not here. And we must fix our eyes on him and realize, brothers and sisters, that as he brings the trial and the troubles in your life and he starts to expose the things in our hearts that do cause us to wonder, cause us to struggle, cause us to lose our way, cause us to stagger in our faith a bit, that it's really a blessing from God. It's really a blessing from God. He's exposing our hearts and the things that are separating us from him. He's pruning, he's sanctifying He's completing us in that process. And while it's hard, it's so very good. It's so very good. There's a truth. It's hard to say, but it's true that the Christian, if you're in Christ and you're in trial or trouble, you're blessed. Because God is at work in that and he's doing something through it. And he's taking you somewhere ultimately good. So, as we finish up, brothers and sisters, muse, meditate on the goodness of our Lord, and may his will be done in our lives so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you and to him be the glory be dominion forever and ever amen all right let me pray lord thank you for this time in your word father i pray that by your spirit you would take your truth and implant it in each of our hearts in just the way you know we need lord whether you are helping us now in trials and troubles that we're in lord to redirect our thoughts and to place them on you and to resign ourselves to whatever your will is for our life and to be at peace with that, Lord, because we know it's good and better. Or whether trial is coming, Father, 
And this is preparatory for us to be able to walk through whatever you ordained for us. Father, please change us, make us more like your son, that we would be pleasing to you. Lord, you're worthy. We love you. We thank you for Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.